0: say I am, and we have been focusing on some great identity markers in Christ. I love what Pastor Otto had to say about our new members today. Uh, their identity marker could be called faithful today. They're choosing faithfulness. And you might say, well, there is only a few. Well, the good news about that is the other half are going to be dedicated to second service today. And so if you want to see who they are, just stay, because who wouldn't want to hear me preach twice in one morning? So we'll be dedicating another group of, of new members in second service, which is so cool as well. A number of years ago, on a February weekend just like this, I took my young adults on a winter retreat. And on my winter retreats, I always tried to have some fun activities. We did have a human rod race, which went well until someone had an asthma attack. We, we uh, had some great uh, snow kickball. If you've never played kickball in the snow, you're really missing out. Uh, but but the, the, big, the big competition that, that weekend was that we were going to have a capture the flag tournament out in the snow. Some of my young adults and some of the youth that were on that trip right now are cringing as I tell this story. Because it wasn't just capture the flag. I had decided that the best thing to do would be to bury the flags in a snowman in about an area about the size of our sanctuary And to get to the other team's snowman was simple. You just had to physically break through the other team to get there. And what ensued over the next few minutes was the biggest royal rumble that I have ever overseen in my entire life. Aside from kicking and punching, everything else could be seen in the next few minutes. There were pile drivers, there were body slams, there were headlocks, there were arm bars, there were leg locks, there were people screaming, there was faces shoved in the snow. It was horrible. And as this was happening, I thought I'm going to get in trouble cuz someone's going to die. Now I don't know about you, but most people do not have the, the cardiac energy to wrestle full bore for a few minutes, so what, what seemed like 20 minutes was probably about four, and after about four minutes of trying to break through the opposite team to get to that snowman, just about everybody was laying on the ground going, oh, oh, oh. Some people like had each other in the fake headlocks, like, just lay here, we'll pretend like we're trying to get there, because it was so exhausting. Well, as I sat there, just determined that I was done trying to get to that flag, I looked and I had a teammate who had broken through the other team and was aggressively scooping out that snowman to try to find that flag. And what was most impressive about that moment was... That young lady might have been 89 pounds soaking wet in a parka. She was the smallest gal on the entire trip. She was unstoppable that day. And as she turned and saw the rest of us humongous humans laying there in the snow panting, she turned and screamed, come on! Like that. Well, that was inspiring. (laughs) So we got up, we got back into the melee, and we were able to get our flag and it was so worth it, because I probably forgot to even get a prize for the winning team, because that all, all it was was pride that was driving us to get that flag. But it was so inspiring, that moment where somebody has continued to fight when everybody else is just sort of laying there panting. As we get into chapter two of First Peter, we have to remember that the people to whom he was writing were in a fight. They were really in a fight for their lives, as Christians. They were in an area that there was heavy persecution. The only people that they had were one another. And they were trying to survive as people who served Jesus Christ in a world that was violently opposed to them. And Peter has said to them, listen folks, I want you to know that in the midst of this fight you are elect exiles. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. You are called by God to be exactly where you are right now. And I want you to know that you do not have to be defined by the suffering. You are not defined by it. You are refined by it. Your salvation is secure in Christ Jesus. You are a trust fund baby. You've got it, all right? And then he turns the page and he says, but if you want to survive, you've got to be holy. If you want to survive as the church of Jesus Christ... You have to pursue godliness with everything you have, you have. You have to fight for it. And that's what we were talking about last week. Well, now Peter is going to turn the page. He's going to tell us two more hows. Two more hows to be holy. Two more ideas about how we can pursue godliness. And then he's going to give us a why. Something better than the prize that Pastor Matt forgot. Something better than capturing that flag in the pride that you get when you fight for it no he's going to give us a why that is so important as to why we pursue holiness that it should change us forever and we've been having these identity markers these things that god calls us through the apostle peter and there'll be more up there next week and they're just adding on to one another throughout this book i want to tell you as they add on to one another we're going to see perhaps two of the most shocking identity markers that we have seen yet towards the end of this passage the whys are the identity markers themselves. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to see two hows and then two big whys. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1, 1 through 5 of First Peter. So, put away, Peter says, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here in in verse 1 of chapter 2, as Peter continues to tell us how to be holy, he says, put off character flaws like malice, like deceit, like hypocrisy, like envy, like slander. Put those things off of you. And it's, it's, it's very aggressive language. The language that he uses is to take off what's on you and put it away and don't take it back up again. It's like when a baby throws up on you. You don't just sit there in your clothes. You get those off as quickly as possible, don't you? You don't want to sit in that. And some of you are like, oh, sometimes I do, Pastor Matt. I just, I... I just can't take it anymore. God bless you. The Lord will be your protector and defender. But anyhow, you you don't sit on that. You get those clothes off. You don't want to put them back on until they've been washed. Well, these are clothes we never put back on. We have to fight off these character flaws. Why do we fight off these character flaws? Because they're the opposite of who God is. Look at the word malice. Desiring ill will towards others. You ever desire that something bad happened to another person? You might not wish that they die, but you just might wish that they look foolish or stupid or get theirs. You know what I'm talking about? Malice. God doesn't exist in any malice towards us. God is so interested in doing good by us that he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. There's no malice in God. God is good. He's merciful. He's loving and forgiving. He can't have his servants feeling any type of ill will towards one another. You can't do it. I had a lady who was a a big-time Christian, and and I don't know if you know what I mean by big-time Christian, but she was a big-time Christian. She said one time she was in a fight with some ladies from her church, so she and some ladies who were on her side, they went and they met in one of the stalls in the ladies' bathroom and prayed that that lady would die. And then she died. And then she took it as from the Lord. It was the looniest story I'd ever heard. As the story was over, I thought, yes, you are insane. That is, that is not what God would have willed. And the coincidence that the lady died, ugh, creepy, but probably not the will of God, right? So maybe you don't wish malice upon somebody that out level. I, I hope you don't. But God's, God, God doesn't operate in any ill will, and therefore we can't operate in any ill will. God doesn't operate in any deceit. God is truth. So we've got to operate in truth. We can't operate in ways that that make us seem better in the eyes or do better in the eyes of other people for our gain. That's deceit. God is not full of hypocrisy. God is I am who I say I am. That's his name, right? God is is somebody who is not fake, is just real, no fakeness. You don't pretend to be something you're not. See, these are all things that, that, that the Apostle Peter looks at, and he goes, these are things that break down community. These are things that break down unity, malice and hypocrisy, deceit, envy, wanting, somebody, wanting something that somebody else has, thinking that you're entitled or deserve something that somebody else owns, especially within the community, envy. And then, of course, the one that, that, that just should, should grab us all, slander. And not just slander, but all slander. All negative talk about other people. Ooh. I don't like that because I have sort of a wicked sense of humor. I like to make fun of people. Mostly to their face. Mostly. Just so they know that I know that they're funny. But all slander, it says. Anything that would devalue another human being that comes out of our mouth, that, that can't be. Why does Peter go there? You know, he doesn't go to drunkenness or sexual immorality or greed. He goes to these ones because he realizes that a community that is under this type of pressure, they got to stick together. they got to love one another deeply and from the heart. They can't have character flaws that break down community. Peter says, put these things off and leave them off forever. Take them off and then take something else on. Look at verse two. He says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Peter says you need to think of yourself as a newborn, and you've got to fight to get fed. You've seen newborns. Newborns do one thing. They try to get milk. Like that's it. They come out of the womb, craning their necks, mouth wide open, trying to get fed. This is the image that Peter thinks about that Christians should be engaged in when it comes to spiritual things. That we crave pure spiritual milk. That we want what God has to offer. That we want it desperately. The minute we come into this Christian world, we should want what is God's and we should want it deeply. Now that's tough. Because that takes us acknowledging that we need to grow. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times we walk around as Christians pretty sure that we're grown up. Pretty sure that we, we're not infants any longer. Pretty sure, pretty sure that we've moved on to steak and potatoes, you know? And Peter reminds us, no, let's crave the pure simplicity of what God has designed for us. Can you crave the pure simplicity of prayer? Can you pray, crave the pure simplicity of Bible reading? Can you crave the pure simplicity of Wanting to listen to the spoken word of the Bible? Can you crave the simplicity of small group meetings? Can you crave the simplicity of worship? These are the type of simple things that God has instituted that Peter says you need to crave these things like a newborn. Open your mouth, crane your neck, and try to get there because that's what you need. That's the imagery that he's giving us. Now, now, I want to tell you, something happened this week, and I'm not trying to say, oh, 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 you're awesome, man. This just occurred to me this morning. I I, I had my day off the other day, and and I grabbed my Bible, and I opened it, and as I opened my Bible, I made this sound. Ah. Yeah, and I thought, yeah, my Bible, the Word of God, like something emotional was elicited in that moment where I went, ah. And, and, and as I began to read, that that craving was satisfied. And I don't know if we can choose what we crave, but I know that Peter says, just do it. Just choose to crave it. I don't know psychologically how we do that. I want to tell you, for me, I don't always crave the right things. In fact, I have an elder, this is this is absolute truth, Who who contacts me once a week to make sure that I've done my devotions and prayed. Once a week, just... Have you done your devotions? Have you spent time with the Lord? Not for this. Not for this. I always have to read my Bible for this and pray for this. No, for Matthew. Does Matthew read his Bible? Does Matthew pray? Does Matthew, is Matthew craving pure spiritual milk? Because we, we oftentimes choose to crave other things. And not everything that we crave is bad. Interestingly enough, when I took my first sip of coffee this morning, I made the same utterance I made when I opened my Bible the other day. Ah! <sighs> I think I also said pure nectar, you know, right in that moment. My wife knows I'm weird. She was all right with that, yeah. It's okay. You know, we're we're, we're made to crave. We're made to desire things. But can we teach ourselves or reteach ourselves to crave the simplicity of what God has laid before us that we might pursue godliness? Like, do you come into church and you're like, I get to worship God today. Awesome. Awesome. Do you come into church, you're like, I just had a fight with my wife. Awesome, you know? How do we come into this place? I was telling my wife, and I think I mentioned this last week, maybe the second service, maybe to you. If it's redundant, that's okay, because I have the microphone and you don't. Here's the thing. I tell my wife every week that, that, that on Wednesday nights, I, I actually get to be in a life group. Like, it's just eight people, and, and we pray over one another. We study the word together. We encourage one another. A- and what's so cool about that is, is, is I leave every week, and I go home, and I tell my wife, I'm like, this was the best hour of my week. Because it's just simple. Simple. We prayed together, we read the word together, we mutually encouraged one another, we, we shared stories about what God was doing in our lives and, and, we're, and it's just so so simple, but it's just so good. It's just so good. And when we prepare our hearts to worship and we give God the worship that we're to give him, and then His spirit comes and fills up our spirit, it's just so good. And when we read our Bibles and, and we see something that God's pointing to in our lives that he wants to encourage us or Or or, or correct us. It's just so good. These, just the simple things, Peter says, you got to crave those things. You got to be after those things. Because those are the things that are going to lead you towards godliness. So we got to put off some things. We got to take on some things. But now comes the why. Now comes the great big because for Peter. And this great big because is going to tell us a little bit about theology, and then it's going to say something shocking. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, says Peter, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. See, this is the because beginning right here. This is the transition of the because. We talked about being holy because we want to be like our Father last week. Now we're going to get another reason to be holy he says, as you come to Jesus, who is the living stone, you go, okay, I don't know what that means. And, and, and honestly, this is something, this is a point that's being made that if you don't know the Old Testament real well, you're going to miss. But, but I want to I I talk through this for just a minute. You see, this idea of God being a stone or a rock, it's all over the Old Testament. This idea that God is this strong, stable, firm thing in our lives that is is all over especially deuteronomy and psalms over and over and over again into the dozens of times over and over and over and god is this rock god is this stone and almost every time almost every time check me on this go type in the keywords on biblegateway.com not during the sermon but later go ahead and check me on this almost every time it says that god is either the rock of our salvation the rock and redeemer, or the rock and the refuge. Those are the three things. Almost always salvation, but also sometimes redeemer, and then once in a while our refuge. Therefore, salvation and rock go together like peanut butter and jelly. God being the one who saves us. God being the firm one to place our salvation upon or or to take refuge under or to be redeemed from whatever it is that we were in slavery to. And we set our lives on this rock and salvation occurs. But something happens as the Bible progresses in the Old Testament, talking about this rock that is the salvation. There are moments in Isaiah and other places where all of a sudden they're recognizing God can also be a rock that you stumble over. The same rock that's supposed to be the firm foundation of our salvation, if not received correctly, can be that which we fall down. Because God's not changing. God's not moving. God is salvation. It is what it is. And you either accept God as that rock to build your foundation upon or that refuge under which to take shelter, or you don't. But if you don't, you're going to stumble right over it. And the New Testament authors pick up on this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, and Paul all talk about Jesus as being the rock that was rejected by so many but was also the means of salvation for so many. I mean, that's five of, of the New Testament biblical authors all talk about Jesus as being the one who was rejected by the highly religious people but accepted by those who became children of God, who became called Exiles, whatever it is, that we have chosen God and He has become our salvation. And so, this is one of the biggest biblical allusions, A L L, allusions in the entire Bible. This living stone represents God's salvation. And what Peter is saying is people have rejected Christ, but that doesn't change that Christ is chosen and precious by God to bring salvation to humanity. Doesn't change which should really speak to this audience because they have been rejected by the culture, but that doesn't mean that their salvation is in question. Jesus is still the rock to build the foundation of their salvation upon the refuge under which to take refuge in their lives. And that shouldn't be shocking, but I just wanted to explain that to you because when we see God, especially Jesus referred to a stone, we're talking about salvation, but what comes next is going to be shocking. Look at verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves who was just called a living stone jesus and you are like jesus you are a rock like christ in that somehow you are part of god's salvation plan you are a living stone here's the foundation the bedrock that is jesus and somehow you fit into the salvation plan of god like this as you put your life upon him and your sister or brother in christ fits in like this and somebody else that's sitting down the road from you fits in like this and the christians down the road at the other church they fit in like this but we are all like living stones part of god's salvation plan You are a rock like Christ. This is why you must be holy. Because in the same fashion, you may be rejected. But in the same fashion, people also might accept who Jesus is as part of who you are. And that is the reason we must be like our God. Because we are part of the rock that people are either going to stumble over or build their life upon. You you're either one that somebody's going to stumble over as they are grappling in this life to figure out what this life is all about, or you're going to be someone that says, come on in. You fit right here. This is where you belong, near Christ, on your foundation. I'm I'm anchored here. Grab my elbow. Hop in. Yes, linked up. Here we are saved by Jesus Christ. We're part of God's spiritual house that's being building. And then, then he's just going just gonna to blow us up even further. He goes, you want to know why? Because you are holy priests. He moves from living stones, and he goes, you're a holy priest. You say, I don't think I'm dressed for that. No, you're not. Don't wear your robes next week. Our safety and security team will have some questions for you if you do. But you are a holy priest. Whew. Think about that. Anybody ever called you a priest before? I mean, we're Protestants. Did you know this? Did you know we're Protestants? Like, we're not Orthodox, Catholic, or Coptic. We're Protestants. And the idea of being Protestant is not that we protest everything, though we do a good job of that sometimes. No. The idea of being Protestants is that there is a priesthood of every believer. Everyone who believes in Christ Functions as a priest. And what does a priest do? A priest stands between a needy people and a holy God and helps to bring them together by the spiritual sacrifices that they offer. In the Old Testament, they would. They would help people make these sacrifices in the temple. And ostensibly, it was to reconnect them to God and to say, through God's mercy and grace, he's forgiving your trespasses and bringing you into relationship with him. And the priest was was the one who facilitated that interaction. We must be holy. This is the because. This is the why. Because we are living stones who are facilitating the action of needy people coming back into contact with the God who loves them. We're holy priests. We connect people to God. And there's some people who read this and they go, well, those spiritual sacrifices, that's a somewhat nebulous statement. No, it's not. Not when taken together with living stones. Not when thought about thoroughly as to what those sacrifices meant in the Old Testament. Not at all. It's not nebulous. You're bringing people back to connection with God. Therefore, how's your character? Therefore, what you've been drinking. Talk about milk. What you've been drinking. That's why you must be holy. Holy. That's why you must be set apart. That's why you must pursue godliness. That's why you want to be like him. Because you are helping being a living stone for someone else to build upon. You are designed to help reconnect people with God. But if you're not holy, if you're not set apart, if you look like some pebbles on the ground, if you ain't wearing your robes, no one's going to recognize you as anybody who can bring them back into connection with their God. That's why. We want to be holy. And I'm going to make this point even further in the coming weeks. When we get down to verses 11 and 12, you are going to see this. It's going to be even more explicit. It's going to be more clear. But this is what Peter's pushing us towards. He's saying, be like God because your job is to connect others to God. You're a holy priesthood. That's who you are. How's your character today? See, are you a baby recognizing your dependence upon God and wanting to grow up into your salvation? Are you humble enough to see what God's trying to do in you because of who you are? A living stone, a holy priest. God's trying to change you. God's trying to work on you. God's trying to build you up because you are his and called by him to do this work as living stones and holy priests. We want to be holy because we want to be like our Father. We want to be holy because we're called priests. How's your character today? You know, a lot of times we can minimize what's going on in our life. But I tell you, oftentimes what you see as a molehill, the people around you will see as a mountain. What you see as a quirk, other people will see as a character flaw. When you say, that's just who I am, others may be saying, yeah, that's just who they are. Living stones and holy priests don't have any right to stay cracked and unclean. No right. Because we've got more work to do. We're elect exiles in this world. That means that this is not our home. We have work to do while we're here. And over and over and over again in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Peter just says, until the revelation of Jesus Christ, until Christ returns, until time is ended, this is what we're here to do right now. To be living stones and holy priests. Because Christ is returning. So bind up the cracks. Take off what is unclean. So that we can do what God's called us to do. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? We talked about this last week, preparing your mind for action. That's what this time is all about. God, what is it you want me to do? How do I pursue holiness with you? And as our prayer team comes quickly and steps into this altar right now, I'm just going to invite you to make this a house of prayer. There are people right now who would love to pray for you. You don't have to admit that you're full of character flaws today. You don't have to come up here and say, I'm a mess. But we want to have people here to pray for you today because perhaps just in this place for a few minutes you would say, Pastor Matt, I have not regarded myself as having anything to do with the salvation that God is trying to bring through Jesus or or I have I just want to crave the things of the Lord and I haven't had somebody pray for me forever I I just want to crave him and and, and desire him I, I want to pray that I would just desire more of him or maybe I do have something that I just need to admit today is a flaw and I need the Holy Spirit's help that I might just take this and put it off